Well, at this time, we're going to invite our, our guest speaker today to, to, um, to come and deliver the word to us. It's been a joy to get to know um, John Guy over the last couple of months more directly. I've known of John for several years. He was the song director out at um, Lancaster Baptist Church in Lancaster, California. And if you've ever been to Lancaster, California, you know there's not a lot of green uh, grass there unless it's intentionally watered. And so it was funny to hear John yesterday when I picked him up over at Huntsville International Airport to hear him talk about all the greenery here at this time of year because it's all brown. Um, over in Lancaster this time of year. And then he was also amazed that out at Rusty and Vanessa Johnson's house, there was actual real cotton. He was mesmerized by the cotton field. So uh, welcome to Alabama, John. I, I, I'd asked him if uh, this was his first time in Alabama. He said yes. And so let's all welcome John to the promised land. Amen? And we know it's the promised land. Why? Because Auburn football happens here anyway. Oh, yeah. Oh, me. That starts next weekend, I guess. Well, um, John, it's a blessing to have you. The reason that I had John in today is to really uh, cap off the end of our missions month with a focus on local uh, stateside church planting. As I mentioned in the video, we support two other stateside works, and we like to support stateside church planting for two to three years at a time. And John has an incredible uh, vision for the city that God has called him to. And what I appreciate most about John is his, um, is his foundation in the gospel. And so today he's going to give you the gospel. He's going to show you how the gospel applies to you if you've never heard it before and how it's good news for you to receive for your salvation, but also how the gospel is good news to those who have already trusted Christ and how it continues to transform our lives. So John, you come and preach the word to us this morning. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Well, good morning. And uh, it is good to be with you folks here at Fairview Baptist Church. And I've enjoyed uh, getting to know Pastor Brian. And uh, uh, kind of similarly, we've kind of gotten to know each other a little bit through social media at first. And that's amazing how you can get connected that way uh, in this day and age. But then uh, just yesterday, spending uh, several hours just talking and, and uh, growing and sharpening and, and learning together. I've enjoyed that. Well, here I thought cotton grew at Walmart. But um, I guess it grows on little bushes. But uh, that was, I looked over, I said, that's cotton, isn't it? And he said, yeah, that's cotton. I was like, okay, it must be in Alabama. We don't have that in California. But uh, I've appreciated the emphasis of uh, today and um, really what seems to be this whole month for you as a church, uh, emphasizing missions. And uh, my wife and I, for 12 years, uh, have served on the staff at Lancaster Baptist Church. And uh, I think many of you might know Ayla Schmidt. Well, she's Ayla Johnson now. She was my secretary for, for two years, actually three years, um, uh, with music and then also with some administration things. Uh, and she was just, uh, just an incredible blessing and help. And then Tyler, he's, he's all right, Tyler, but uh, uh, he's, he's really growing there in his administration as well and his role there in Lancaster Baptist and West Coast Baptist College. But uh, just tremendous young people. Um, but when I think of uh, missions and when I think of even seeing this video, and I think of Jessica's song that she sang a moment ago about giving your life. True life is only found on the other side of a willingness to die. And that's one of the paradoxes of Christianity. But we see that modeled first in Jesus. That true life is only found on the other side of death. And so when I think of missions, when I think of 
uh, church planters, when I think of my own family, when I think of the other three families that have made the decision to move, to bring their children, and to replant their lives, I think of the illustration that Jesus gave of the mustard seed. That that mustard seed must be planted and then it must first die. And only after that death can true life come. And so we, I speak as a church planter, as a missionary, appreciate the willingness of folks like you who are willing to give and to pray and sometimes even to go on a missions trip and support those who are willing to plant their lives because it is very much a death. And I don't, I don't say that in a discouraging way because I understand the other side of that death. The life that comes through Christ and his gospel is so much more glorious than the life that I can create on my own. And Jesus said that if you lose your life for my sake and the gospels, you'll find it. And that's the death I speak of, a willingness to lose our life for the cause of Christ. And so I want to say thank you to you as a church family for praying, uh, for the missions team to, to, to organize and to, to plan and to do little things like prayer pages and mission boards and, and just kind of keep the church family aware. Thank you for your, your willingness to do that and to support uh, folks like me and my family. Uh, we are headed to, actually we're not headed, we're there now. Uh, we moved less than two weeks ago. We pulled out with our U-Haul truck and we drove the six hours from Lancaster, California across the 10 to, uh, to Tempe, Arizona. Our house is actually in Chandler, which is just south. Tempe, Arizona is just southeast of Phoenix. It's considered a sister city. It is an exploding, a growing metropolitan area. Uh, some four million plus people in that Phoenix metropolitan area. One of the largest growing cities in the United States right now is Gilbert, which is just east of where we are, where we live in Chandler. Uh, Tempe is a very young demographic. It's, uh, it's where ASU is, and the venue where we will be meeting is just across the street. You cross one crosswalk, and you are at the ASU campus. Over 50,000 students, 18 to 22-year-olds. You talk about a mission field, they're coming to us from literally all across the world, uh, coming to that university, and, and we feel that God has given us a unique position there, even in that location, uh, to reach into that campus and to, to reach some of those college students. The median age in Tempe is 28 and a half. It's very young. There are a lot of young families there as well, where we live in Chandler, a lot of young families. Um, Chandler is a little more suburban than, than Tempe is. But uh, the Lord has laid it on the hearts of three other couples to come with us and to partner with us. They're not being supported. They're coming there uh, to really be bivocational. They're getting jobs. Two of them are already there. They already have jobs. Uh, and they are just planting their lives with us into that, into that work. And uh, we are eternally grateful to them for their willingness and their desire to do that. The Lord has given us a, just a tremendous spirit on our team. Uh, we will be hosting four preview services beginning in October. There'll be monthly services where once a month we have a service at our venue and we'll be building a launch team from the local community, people that we reach, people that we meet uh, to help partner with us in that work. And then February 10th of 2019 will be the launch of our weekly services. Uh, I don't know a lot about church planting, but the one thing I have learned is you don't launch on Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> Apparently nobody will come including some of your own launch team, I guess. But uh, Super Bowl Sunday is February 3rd. 
And so as you're watching the Super Bowl, be thinking about us and praying for us because the week after, we will be launching into weekly services uh, there in Tempe, Arizona. The name of the church is City Point Baptist Church. Uh, you can check out our website, citypointaz.com, citypointaz.com, and uh, just kind of read up a little bit about our family and some of the mission and the vision that we have there for that city. You can follow us on social media, at citypointaz, uh, on, social, on uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just kind of keep up with what God is doing and, and uh, know how to pray maybe a little bit more intelligently as far as what's going on there. And so we would certainly uh, appreciate those prayers and that support. Well, this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. Luke 15. I love this passage of Scripture. And I read it again this morning just in my own personal time with the Lord and his spirit was speaking to me and revealing things to me once again about himself and it just excited me and encouraged me once again this morning. And so I hope that as we look at this passage, uh, the, the Lord will just again uh, draw us closer to himself and reveal more of himself to us. Luke chapter 15, I'm going to encourage you to keep this, uh, this chapter open because we're, we're pretty much going to read through most of it, if not all of it. But uh, by way of introduction, I want to begin with uh, the first three verses. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Then drew near unto him, unto Jesus, two groups of people. First, all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. Notice their motivation. Notice their desire. The publicans. Those would have been the tax collectors. We know Matthew was one of those. We know Zacchaeus, the wee little man. He was, he was a chief tax collector. Nothing against multi-level marketing, but that's really what he did. Um, he, he was at the top, and there were tax collectors under him, and he was a very wealthy, prestigious man, but nobody really liked him because the way he got his wealth was by cheating and stealing and robbing. And he worked. He was a Jewish man who worked for the Roman government, and he taxed the Jewish people. So you can kind of see that relationship there would not have gone over too well with the Jewish people. But he got his money, his earning, by taxing over and above what was, what was required of him by the Roman government. And that's what the publicans were known for. And then there's this category of sinners. So you have publicans and sinners were drawing near to Jesus. I love that picture because people like this wanted to be by Jesus. They wanted to draw near to him. Jesus was certainly going to them, but they were coming to him. Something about Jesus was attractive. So you have this one group of publicans and sinners were drawing near to Jesus to hear him. Then verse 2, here's the second group. The Pharisees and the scribes murmured. That word murmur is it, doesn't have the idea of just murmuring among themselves. It actually carries this idea of murmuring among the crowd. So they were, they were, they were gossiping. They were, they were spreading their ideas. They were spreading their frustration. They were murmuring, saying, this man receiveth sinners. Go figure, right? The one who has come to seek and to save the lost, he receives sinners. Well, of course, but they didn't like that. This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. I'm sure there's a, there's a lot more of this idea in the southern culture, probably not so much where I am out in the west, but when you have a meal with someone, that you're doing life with them. You're identifying with them. I love the southern hospitality. The Johnsons have been so encouraging. I got fresh peaches this morning, and uh, that, was, that, was, that was enjoyable. 
But when Jesus sat to eat a meal with these publicans and sinners, he was identifying with them, doing life with them. And, and the Pharisees and the scribes, they didn't like that because, because as, as the religious elite, as the religious leaders, they were to be separate from that crowd. They were to be distinct from that crowd. They were not to mingle with that crowd. That would, that would cause them to be dirty. But Jesus obviously thought very differently than they did. So verse 3, Jesus begins into this parable. He's going to tell a story, one that is quite familiar to us, and one that no doubt we could learn um, several great truths from. We've often called this the story of the prodigal son, but I would, I would venture to say that this is less about the son and more about the father. And of all the things that we could pull out of this, I want you to, I want you to walk away with one big truth that I'm, going to hope to, I'm, I'm hoping to drive home this morning. That this story, which is actually in three parts, but it's one story, a shepherd, a woman, and a father, it's, it's really all the same parable. It's only one parable. It's only one thought, one, one, one main theme that Jesus is trying to drive home. But I want you to keep in mind as we go through this parable, the context the context that Jesus is seated at a table having a meal with publicans and sinners, group number one. And group number two, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are murmuring and complaining and disputing and, and they really have a problem with this. And so Jesus, in this context of this meal, begins to tell this story as only Jesus can do. Jesus was the master teacher. And in this parable, he is, he is trying to unveil and reveal something about himself that the students of the Torah missed from the law. He's trying to reveal the heart of the Father, really even through himself, because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And so these students of the Torah, these Pharisees and these Sadducees who would have studied the law, Jesus says to them in a later portion of Scripture, search the Scriptures. For in them, in the scriptures, you think you have eternal life. But they, the scriptures, are they which testify of me. And so Jesus is trying to drive home a point. Pharisees, Sadducees, you think you know God, but you don't. You think you have found God through your study of the scripture. He's there, but you've missed him. So let me share with you through this parable, through this story, the heart of God. Because if you understand the heart of God, this is Jesus in, in my own way of his thinking <laughs> toward the Pharisees. If you understand the heart of God, you're going to understand why I am sitting at this table with publicans and sinners. And so keep that context in your mind as we go through Luke chapter 15. Would you have a word of prayer with me as we begin? We want to ask God's blessing on his scripture. Father, we love you and we want to see Jesus. We want him to be high and lifted up. And Lord, it is our default position as human beings to begin thinking and criticizing and critiquing like a Pharisee. So change that thinking and cause us to think more like Jesus, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the purpose of Luke chapter 15 was really for Jesus to teach and to drive home this point that while the Pharisees thought they knew God, and while they were convinced that they understood God from the law, they had really missed the point of God. 
This was a common scene that Jesus would spend time with publicans and sinners. This was a common theme because Jesus was often taking the thinking of the Pharisees and just flipping it on its head. When they thought they had him figured out, when they thought they could corner him, he would come along and just kind of throw him for a loop. And, and, and he would begin to take their, their religiosity and say, that's not really who I am. That's not really why I've come. I'm going to flip that on its head a little bit. I'm going to show you who I really am because I am a reflection of God. And if you'll understand me and my ministry and my heart for people, you'll, you'll begin to understand God and his ministry and his heart for people. And so Jesus begins into this story and so if you look at, at, again, at Luke chapter 15 and verse 4, well, let's start at verse 3. And he spake this parable. A parable is a story. It's revealing. Uh, an, a, a, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. He spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost? Notice this, until he find it. This was risky. Because there's no indication that the shepherd here leaves the 99 under anybody else's care. But he was so passionate and so desirous to find the one that he leaves his entire livelihood exposed and vulnerable to go after the one. He leaves the known for the unknown. He continues there. Verse 5. And when he hath found it, what does he do? I love this picture here. He layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Because the sheep in and of itself could not bring itself back home, could not bring itself back to the fold. And so the sheep had to be picked up by the shepherd and placed on his shoulders and carried back home. And if you begin to see the parallels there, you begin to see a picture and a glimpse of salvation. That you and I in ourselves, because we were lame by our sin, because we were incapable, incapable because of the curse of sin upon us, had to be lifted up onto the shoulders of Christ, and he bore our sin, and he brought us back home. Verse 6, and when he cometh home, what a beautiful word, home. Home is a place of acceptance. Home is a place of belonging. Home is a place where you can just be yourself in a lot of ways. There's rest at home. I've been traveling for a couple of days. I, I miss home. I miss my wife. I miss our three boys. Uh, I miss just the environment of walking into my house. We've only lived there for two weeks, but it is still home. It's more home than the last house because if I were to walk into the last house, some new people would look at me really strangely. <laughs> what are you doing here? This is not your home. But home is a, is a beautiful place of acceptance and warmth and belonging. And when the shepherd brings the sheep back, he brings him back home. And he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me. There's a party, there's a celebration. For I have found my sheep which was lost. And I say unto you that likewise, joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over the ninety and nine. Just Persons. I wonder who he was talking to. Really, in that one verse, he references both groups. The one sinner and the 99 just. He continues, verse 8. 
Either what woman having 10 pieces of silver, that's not a base metal, the word is drachma, it's a valuable metal. What woman having 10 pieces of silver, if she lose one, doth not light a candle and sweep the house? Ladies, you know the diligence that needs to be taken to clean a home. But she was willing to sweep the house and to, to turn it over and to check every nook and every cranny of that house. As a matter of fact, she was willing to even light the oil. Oil was expensive. She didn't just flip a switch. She had to light that oil. Oil was, was, was reserved for special occasions because oil was very costly. But she was willing to spare no expense to find that one piece of silver. What happens when she finds it? Well, it looks very similar. Verse 9. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of angels, the angels of God, over one sinner that repenteth. So he talks about a shepherd and a sheep. He talks about a woman and her coins. Then he begins into what might be one of the most famous, if I could use that word, one of the most famous stories that Jesus Christ ever told. As I mentioned a moment, a moment ago, we often call it the story of the prodigal son. There's actually two sons, but it's really not about the boys. Why do I know that? Well, go back to the context. Go back to the two groups of people, the publicans and the sinners sitting at a meal. Jesus is identifying with them. Jesus is spending time with them. And then you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees murmuring among the crowd saying, what is this man? He's receiving sinners. That's the context. And in this story, we find both of those groups. We find the prodigal, the younger son, and we find, if I could use this word, the Pharisee, the older son. Both are in the story, but the story is not about either one of those. The story is really about the father. And by the way, let me say from the, from the outset that the father is just as concerned with the prodigal as he is with the Pharisee. His heart toward the Pharisee, oftentimes we write off the Pharisee and say, you know, that Pharisee should have known better and don't be like a Pharisee. And it's true, we shouldn't. But God's heart toward the Pharisee, and all of us have some of that in us, don't we? Some of us might be even recovering Pharisees. I don't know. And maybe there was a period of our life where we, where we really could have identified more as the Pharisee, murmuring and complaining about the prodigals. But you know, the heart toward the Pharisee is just the same. The heart of the father toward the Pharisee is just the same as the heart of the father toward the prodigal. Look at verse 11. And he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. He wanted his inheritance. Okay, that doesn't sound so bad, but in Jewish culture, that son would have been saying to his dad, you're better to me dead than alive. Because the only way for him to get his inheritance is for his father to be dead. Now, in the ears of those Pharisees, they would have cringed at the disrespect of that younger son. And really, they would have thought that that younger son should have been killed for that request. Give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. But what does the good father do? He doesn't kill him. He doesn't rebuke him. He gives him his request. But notice what he does at the end of verse 12. And he, the father, divideth unto them his living. Who's them? Two sons. Both sons, at the same time in this story, got their inheritance. As a matter of fact, the older son 
who we'll look at in a moment, would have gotten the, the greater inheritance because he was the firstborn. Both sons got their full inheritance at the same time, not just the younger son. We'll look at that a little later. Verse 13, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance. The word prodigal is not found in this passage, but the word prodigal means wasteful. He wasted his substance, the substance that he had received from his father, the inheritance, with riotous living. And when he had spent all, we don't know how long that took, but no doubt it didn't take very long. When he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Some people might look at this famine as the judgment of God. I would look at this famine as the grace of God. I would look at this famine as the good hand of God drawing this son back to himself. So what does he do? Well, he, uh, he tries to fix his problem. He, he tries in and of himself to fix his problem. And don't we do that a lot? Verse, uh, verse 14, and when he had spent all, there rose a mighty famine. He began to be in want. Verse 15, and he went and joined himself. Here's his plan. He joined himself to a citizen of that far country, and he, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now, again, the Pharisees, oh, man, they would have just been boiling. The hair on the back of their neck would have been standing up. Here's this Jewish boy serving a foreign master, and not only is he doing that, but he's feeding unclean swine. That's his job. He's slopping around in the pigsty. And in the Jewish culture, the pigs were unclean animals. You couldn't even eat them. Couldn't get near them. Couldn't touch them. But that's what this boy's doing. You talk about the lowest of the lowest state that this boy got himself into. That was his plan. That was his best laid plan to try to come back from his wasteful living. Verse 16. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, what a beautiful phrase. There are times when we just sort of wake up. You may have a son or a daughter. You may have a friend. You may have a family member. And you look at them and you think, boy, they just seem like they're wasting their life. The Holy Spirit can bring them to themselves. And there's that moment of awakening and understanding. And it's amazing when, it, when I see this because... When he came to himself, notice the first thing that he realizes. <laughs> he realizes that his dad, his father, is good. He realizes that he can go home and he will be accepted. Now, his thinking is a little distorted, but at least he recognizes the heart of his father. Look at what it says. When he came to himself, this is what he says. How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare and I perish with my hunger. He says, even the servants have more than enough to eat. He's recognizing the heart of his dad, that even those who work for his father are well taken care of. And he says, I perish with this hunger. So he, he devises a plan. He says, I will arise, and I will go to my father, and this is what I'll say. He prepares a speech. This is, what his, this is his plan. He's going to go back to his dad. He knows his dad is good. Uh, his servants are well taken care of. So here's his, here's his speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. And that's true. And the Pharisees would have been nodding their head in agreement as Jesus was telling this story. And he continues, and am no more worthy 
to be called thy son. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees would have continued to be nodding their head. He's not worthy. He has shamed the family name. He has disgraced the father. He is no longer worthy to be a part of that family. Where do we come up with this idea that our worth is based on what we do? And that, that our worthiness as a son or a daughter of God is based on how we perform. And when we get to the lowest of the lowest state in our life, when we find ourselves in the pigsty, oftentimes what the devil tries to feed us is you are not worthy because of what you have done. And the guilt that begins to seep in and it begins to, it, it begins to haunt us and we begin to tell ourselves and believe this lie of the accuser by the way, Jesus is our advocate. He is not our accuser. But the accuser comes along and says, you're not worthy. Look at what you did. And immediately, we, we compare our worth with our performance. And the, me the measure of my worth is, is directly related to the measure of my performance. We have three boys. We have a fourth boy on the way. I'm not sure what we were thinking, but... Our boys do a lot of crazy things. I have a three-year-old right now who just loves to break. It's just what he does. Doesn't matter what it is, he just likes to break it. Whether it's windows or drywall, or one, one day I went out and, and uh, he had done artistic work with a spray can on the front bumper of my car. In that moment, I wanted to say, Dylan, you are not worthy to be called my son. You are no longer a part of this family. I was very frustrated, and maybe I was tempted to send him into exile, but no, that's not the heart of a parent, and that's not, that's not the relationship of a parent. Nothing my children can do can cause them to stop being my child because they didn't earn that relationship through anything that they did. They were simply born. And I would say to you and to me, we did nothing to earn our relationship with Jesus Christ, we were simply born again. And so our worthiness is never based upon what we do. You will never be more righteous than the day you got saved. You will never be more, you will never have more of God than the day you got saved. My six-year-old is saved, he's seven. <laughs> Boy, time flies. My seven-year-old is saved and I look at Braden and I remind myself that he has just as much of the Holy Spirit as I do. He has just as much, he has been clothed in just as much of the righteousness of God as I have been. So I don't earn it. But this boy here, he began to believe the accuser. And he'll see, he, he prepares this speech and he begins to think, okay, I'm going to say this, uh, Dad, I, I've sinned against you. Uh, I've sinned before heaven. Uh, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your servants. Verse 20, he arose, came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, what does his father do? He sees him. He has compassion on him. He runs toward him. By the way, in Jewish culture, men didn't run. It's undignified. But this is a crazy, reckless, relentless kind of a love. The father leaves that porch, which by the way, he saw him, which means he was looking for him. 
He wasn't inside. He wasn't out in the field with the older son. He was looking, longing, desiring, and hoping that that young son would come home. And as soon as his silhouette came over the horizon, he took off after that son. He embraced him. You know, the embrace of grace can feel awkward sometimes when you're the one being embraced because it feels too good to be true. And that son probably stood there a little awkwardly thinking, okay, I've got this speech. I'm not worthy. I'm going to become a servant. Why is he responding this way? If grace doesn't feel good to be true, you probably don't understand grace. But grace embraces, pulls close, says, come home. Come home. You're welcomed. You're received. What an amazing display. So, reaches into his pocket, pulls on his speech. He's going to go with the plan. And the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no longer worthy to be called thy son. He doesn't get to finish his speech. He never gets to the hired servant part. The dad cuts him off. No, son, you don't understand me. Your worthiness in this family is not based on what you have done or not done. You are my son, therefore you are received. And his father says to his servant, cuts him off, verse 22, bring forth the best robe. Huh, who would have owned the best robe? The father. That would have been the father's robe. Go get my robe, get the best robe, and clothe him in my robe. You see where this is going? Isaiah says that we have been clothed in his righteousness. And so he has been clothed in the Father's robe. Go get the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand. That ring would have, would have signified his position in the family. He was being reinstated into the family. He says, go get shoes and put them on his feet because only servants are barefoot. And this isn't a servant, this is a son. And bring hither the fatted calf. The best calf, kill it, let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive. He is lost and is found. And they began to be merry. What a beautiful picture. Can you imagine the publicans and the sinners listening to this story thinking, huh, I kind of identify with that prodigal. Even this conversation I've been having with Jesus, it feels a little awkward. Like, why is he embracing me so strongly? Why does he seem so accepting of me? Boy, that, that father that he speaks of, I want that. I need that. I want to come home to that. But Jesus isn't done because there's another son, because there's another group. We need to move quickly here, but look at verse 25. Now his elder son was in the field, huh, the field. You mean the fields that he owned? Yes, because remember, he had received the inheritance as well, okay? Why was he working? Why was he slaving? Why was he acting like a servant when he was a son? Why was he living beneath his privilege? It was noble, but look at what it says. 
He drew nigh to the house, and he heard the music and the dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked them what these things meant. I wonder why he didn't understand the heart of the father. Shouldn't he have known what those things meant? If the older son had understood the heart of the father toward the prodigal and the younger son, he would have known why there was music. He would have known why there was dancing. He, the first thought would have been, hey, I hear music. My younger brother must have come home because I know dad, and dad would have thrown a party. But he's like, oh, what's that music? I don't understand. What's going on? Hmm. And he called one of the servants, and he asked what these things meant. Verse 27, he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Why wouldn't he go in? Well, because going in would have been him recognizing that his younger brother was alive. And in his mind, his younger brother was dead because he severed the relationship with the father by asking for the inheritance. He was angry. Therefore, his father came out. Again, here's, here's the heart of a good father because the father is not just interested in the prodigal. The father is also interested in the Pharisee. And so the father moves toward the Pharisee just as he moved toward the prodigal. His father came out and entreated him. What's he trying to do? He's trying to get him to come in. He's entreating him. Come in to the, to the celebration. Come see your brother. Verse 29, he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now we're seeing the reason for his anger. Now we're seeing the true motivation behind why he was in the field. You say, well, should we not serve Jesus? No, no, I'm not saying that. But why do you serve Jesus? Are you serving for relationship or are you serving from relationship? He was serving for a relationship. That's why he got angry. These many years, Dad, I've been serving you. Yes, but you're my son. Why are you acting like a servant when you're my son? I, I'm, I'm thankful that you want to serve. I'm thankful that, that, that you want to demonstrate your love, but, but that's, not your, that's not my relationship. But you don't need to do anything to be my son. You don't have to prove anything. These many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. We start to hear the, the talk of a Pharisee there. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. Notice this, but as soon as this thy son, not my brother, but thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots. <laughs> That's, we never even read about that. Sounds like there's an embellishment of the story here. Thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, this is beautiful. Thou art ever with me. And all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this, thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Such a beautiful passage. And thank you for letting me just kind of take some time to really just kind of work and read through it and navigate through it. I want to just very quickly give three takeaways that I hope we can learn from this. Number one, Jesus wants his passion to be our passion. If you want to know what the passion of Jesus looks like, look at this table of publicans and sinners. If you want to know what your life and my life should look like, it should look like this table where people are in our home, where we're in coffee shops, where we're at, at, in a break room at, at a job, 
and we're surrounded by people who are drawn to us, not because of us, but because there's something attractive about the Jesus that we worship. And they're drawn to that. Well, there's something different about you. You don't, you don't seem to just kind of preach down at me. You seem to just receive me. Why is that? Well, that's because I have been received. And our life should be a reflection of Jesus' passion, and Jesus' passion was for people. Jesus' passion was to bring people home. So are sinners and publicans drawing near to you? Are sinners and publicans drawing near to me? Can I be honest? Can I be candid this morning? The majority of the people that I am closest to are Christians. There's nothing wrong with that. Jesus had some very close friends who were disciples. But that shouldn't be out of proportion and out of balance. There ought to be people in our life that don't look like the folks we see in church on Sunday. There ought to be people in our life that don't look like Jesus because they don't know Jesus. And that's okay. And we ought to welcome that and accept that and receive that. Jesus was a friend of sinners. When Jesus' passion is our passion, we will be willing to take incredible risks like the shepherd who left the 90 and 9. We will be willing to spare no expense like the woman who was willing to light her oil. And we will be willing to open the doors and throw open the doors of this church and throw open the doors of our life and say, this will be home. This will be a place of acceptance, of receptivity, of belonging for people who should know better but wasted their life with riotous living. And this will be a place that don't, for, for people who don't look like us and who don't sound exactly like us. And that doesn't so much matter because the only reason we might look and sound the way we do is because Jesus is working on the inside and manifesting himself on the outside. And so people can come to this church and Fairview Baptist Church can feel like home. That sense of, I'm new here, but I feel like I belong. I, I can't really explain it, but those people, I looked around, I definitely didn't look like them. I felt a little awkward. I didn't know any of those songs. That message was, boy, that was just new. I'd never heard those, those truths articulated. I'm not even sure if those are truths yet. I'm still wrestling with, but that felt like home. Fairview Baptist Church, City Point Baptist Church, our churches ought to be places like that where people can come home. Jesus wants his passion to be our passion. Number two, he's offering a warning here. Don't start thinking like a Pharisee. It's so easy. The longer we're a Christian, the easier we, the more we get cleaned up, the more we start to drift from this category to this category. We look less like the people around the table with Jesus and we look more like the murmurers. <laughs> and before long, we begin to compare and critique and criticize because we know better. We're the older son and we don't even realize it. We're living beneath our privilege. We're laboring and serving and working and trying to earn something from God and prove something to God. And God says, you have nothing to prove. Jesus proved it all. Amen. There's nothing left for you to prove. You are in Christ and I am satisfied. Be my son. Be my daughter. Come out of the field. If you want to do something for me, that's great. 
Do it from a heart of love that is constrained by what I've done for you, and it'll be pure worship. But don't try to prove something. Don't labor to try to work to earn something from me. I'm your father. You're my son. All that I have is thine. I am ever with you. This older son had full access to the fatted calf, to the father's robe, to the ring. It was all his. He inherited it at the same time as the younger son, but he was living beneath his privilege as a child of the father. How many Christians in churches today, this morning, are sitting in churches living beneath their privilege as a child of God? Their, their thinking is changed, it's warped, it's, and, and you know what, God, God desires them just as much as the prodigal, and we ought to be a church that, that receives the Pharisees too. We ought to be a church that allows the Pharisees to come, and we give them grace too. It's a little bit easier to give the prodigal grace than the Pharisee, right? Because the, 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 the prodigal doesn't know any better. The Pharisee does. Come on, man, you, you, you should know better. But grace was given to both by the Father. Jesus is saying, keep my passion front and center in your life. Jesus was saying, secondly, be careful. Don't start thinking like a Pharisee. And thirdly, Jesus was saying, the Christian life is all about relationship. Luke 15 is God showing us his relentless pursuit of relationship. Salvation is just the beginning of that relationship. I think sometimes we think of eternal life as something that we get when we die. You got eternal life when you got the one who is the life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So the day you got saved is the day you got eternal life. So live today in the life that is Jesus Christ. And what we will get to experience for all of eternity will simply be a continuation of him, his life, for all of eternity, eternal life, because he is an eternal God. God created mankind for a relationship with him. It goes back to Adam and Eve. Sin entered into that relationship and broke that relationship. Death came upon that relationship. Separation came upon that relationship. And the only way for that relationship to be restored is for there to be a sacrificial lamb who would take that death and be the satisfactory payment. We could not take death. That's what the law proved. We were incapable of measuring up. But God could not stand the idea and the thought of being eternally separated from you and from me. So he sent his son down to take our death, to take our separation so that we could be received home back to the Father. And now we have an eternal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that is the arc of the story. That is the arc of the Bible. That is the, that is the main through line. That is the main storyline of what God is trying to teach us through his word, that God loves you and desires not just that you would be a citizen of an eternal home, but that you would have a relationship with him. How is that relationship as a Christian? Stay in that relationship. Abide in that relationship. Draw sustenance from the life that is Jesus Christ 
and watch him grow and transform your life. I'm done, but I do want to point out one truth. It's a hidden truth. Because this is a story about a father and two sons. Or is it? Could it actually be a story about a father and three sons? The first son wasted his life with riotous living. The second son criticized and critiqued and got angry because of the heart of the father. And the third son is telling the story. And the third son is not like the first son because he did the will of the father. And he wasn't wasteful and he wasn't riotous. But he was fully obedient so that you and I could enter into his obedience and have a relationship with God. And the third son is not like that second son because he doesn't judge and criticize when someone comes home, but he welcomes them. And he's, not, he's not still slaving in the field. Where is he? Seated at the right hand of the Father because the work's done. It's done. And so the third son is telling the story and you've got the first group over here, the publicans and the sinners saying, boy, I'm like that, I'm like that, that uh, prodigal and, and I desire that relationship with the father. And then you've got this other group over here, the Pharisees and the scribes, and it's interesting because the story just ends. There's no response. We don't really know how that group responds or how this group responds, and it's almost as if Jesus is saying, what are you gonna do with it? Prodigal, what's your response? Will you come home? Pharisee, what's your response? Will you come home? Because the context of this story is what is vital to understanding why Jesus shared this parable. We've taken a journey through Luke 15. May we keep the passion of Jesus our passion. May we not allow that thinking of the Pharisee to creep into our lives where we start to think that we're somehow better or more deserving or we've labored longer so God owes us more. And may we stay in close proximity and close relationship to the one who is our life, the one who is our eternal life, the one who gave his life so that we could have his life.